All right, so we are going to study this topic of the attributes of God. This is the beginning of the section of the topic in theology of God. So we're in week four. The notes are online. It says attributes of God part one. That's going to be part one of one. And then instead, I think we're going to spend two weeks on the Trinity because I think we'll be able to make this all work in one fell swoop. And I think there's more to talk about the Trinity. So with that said, let's, let's dig into it. So before we kind of list off the attributes of God, which we're going to do momentarily, a few clarifications are in order, I think. So the nature of God's attributes, when we say the attributes of God, what are we talking about? At least in, in the world of theology, usually the way that systematic theology textbooks are written, the way that they talk about God's attributes is in a particular way. It's describing, the, the attributes are describing what God is, specifically what God is, the, the characteristics of his nature. So they don't describe, in particular, his actions. So to call God Savior is correct, of course, right? But that's not actually one of his attributes. Savior is who he is to us, if that makes sense. But it's not the, if you will, the substance of what he is. These are attributes are permanent intrinsic qualities that can't be gained or lost. So God became a Savior, by creating us, right? But he wasn't always, strictly speaking, savior to us. We haven't always existed, right? That sort of thing. David. Oh, just real quick. I yeah. Just, I pulled up the notes, and I, no, I noticed up top it says Alden record the lesson. So I just wanted to make sure if you're recording. Thank you for asking, and I did do it. Yes, thank oh, you. I, that's my phone in the middle there. I'm recording the lesson. So thank oh, you, David. Yeah. I appreciate you asking. I am the kind of person who forgets that, so keep that up. That's really helpful. <laughs> Where do, we, where do we find everything? The, the I'll questions? invite you to a group okay. after this. I don't have my phone on me right now, uh, <laughs> but I'll shoot you a link, and then you'll have all the access all right. to all the stuff. Awesome, thank you. Through the app. Through the app. Um, on the app? Yes, in the app. Mm. It's in the church app. That's great. <laughs> That's great. If you I have that already, then money. Um, so these are the characteristics that make God God. Does that kind of make sense so far? I'll, I'll, I'll have some more kind of clarifying um, things as we go on here. But one assumption that I make, not assumption, one thing I, I believe um, that some people who follow someone named Thomas Aquinas don't believe. You guys might have heard of Thomas Aquinas before. He's in the Middle Ages. He was a renowned Catholic scholar, brilliant guy. I love a lot of what he says. I don't love this that he says. <laughs> um, so I am saying God not only is his attributes, and that, that's what Thomas Aquinas says, and that's right. God is his attributes. He is what he is, right? Thomas Aquinas says God can't have his attributes. That doesn't make sense. If God has something, he would have been given it by some prior being. There is no prior being. Therefore, God has nothing. He has none of his attributes. He just is his attributes. Well, I don't, I don't like that. I'm going to say God has his attributes. For example, I want to say God has patience toward me. I want to be able to say that. I also think the Bible says that. I'll get there in just a moment. Um, but I think that's problematic rationale. And, and I'm bringing this up just because a lot of people would object to me saying God has attributes. So I'm kind of just putting my assumptions out in the open here. Um, but I think that's true about humans. I only have what God has given me. 
at the prior meeting, right? But God can have something in a way appropriate to God without having it from some prior being. He just eternally hasn't. I think that's fine to say. Plus, it does literally say that God the Son has life in himself. He has it. Life is one of his attributes. We're about to say that. So I, I think the Bible even says God has his attributes. The glory I had with you before you existed, John 17. Jesus says that about his divine personhood. He had glory. He has glory. He didn't just glory itself. He also has it, I believe. So anyway, but then also note 1 John 5.20, which says that God is life. So God is life and he has life. So anyway, I'm just throwing that. I just do think that God has his attributes and that he is his attributes at the same time. So I know that was maybe a little technical note, but I just wanted to put that out in the open. So when we're talking about, again, the attributes, we're talking about what God is, his, perhaps, I have kind of four synonyms here, his essence, uh, synonymous with his nature, or his being, or substance. I'll list that again. Essence, nature, being, and substance. Those are four words you might have heard before in Christian conversations before. Those are all referring to the same thing, if you will. What God is. What God is in his being. What's his nature? What's his essence? What's his substance? So, an objection that some Christians have at this point in our study is, hold it. You don't know what God is. God is so awesome and ineffable and unfathomable, you can't talk about what God is. That's too much. In particular, Eastern Orthodoxy and I like a lot of what Eastern Orthodoxy teaches. I think it's really fascinating. It's a different part of, it, it's a different type of Christianity than what we believe. They're real Christians. But they have an objection here in terms of talking about God's nature. In particular, they're going to say instead what we have is essence, so that's the being of God, the nature of God, essence versus energies for them. Now, energies, that isn't really a subject in the Bible. It's a theological term that they kind of created, more or less, to talk about this subject that I'm, I'm now bringing up. And I'll explain that in just a moment. Here, here's the difficulty in, in talking about God's attributes and the difficulty that Eastern Orthodoxy is bringing up here. God is both transcendent. He's above us, right? He's beyond us. He's incomprehensible. He's transcendent, but he's also imminent. He's also among us and truly tangible among us, right? So he's both of those things way beyond us and yet totally accessible. And that's hard to fit together into some kind of like technical theological category, right? So that's, that's the difficulty we're experiencing. I still think that what I'm about to tell you is right, but I'm, I'm trying to be fair to Eastern Orthodoxy here. So divine essence, that's what God is, right? But divine energies for Eastern Orthodoxy is divine actions or forces uh, through which God manifests himself to us. So the energies for them is, look, this is how God is accessible. It's not in his nature. His nature is inaccessible. It's in terms of his energies where God is technically fully present, but we're not interacting with his nature, which is incomprehensible. You can't interact with it. It's so beyond you. So it, God is both inaccessible and unknowable and also accessible and knowable. He's inaccessible in his essence, accessible in his energies. And one of the 
kind of key facets of Eastern Orthodoxy is something called negative theology, negative theology. The technical term is apophatic, if you're curious, but I'm going to say negative theology because I think that's a more normal word. Um, that is, the view there of negative theology is speaking about God in terms of what he is not. And they're motivated in particular to talk that way because they don't think they're allowed to say what God is. Do you know what I mean? So they're only going to say God is incomprehensible. He's infinite. He's incomparable. All these ins, right? It's negative because they don't want to say something proactively positive about God at all. So that's their objection exactly with what we're doing right now. Attributes of God, that's positive. You're saying what God positively is. Well, you only can say what he isn't, you know, whereas I want to have kind of a, a moderate negative and positive theology. Now, don't get me wrong. Malachi 3.16, I, the Lord, do not change. Okay, so God is unchanging, right? So that's a negative word. But there's also positive descriptions of God in the Bible. Psalm 34.8, taste and see that the Lord is good. He is good. That, good. God is good. That's a positive statement about God, right? So that's positive theology, cataphatic theology, if you're curious. That's speaking about God in terms of what he proactively is. So example, he's powerful, he's intelligent, he's wise. Those, those are different attributes of God that we'll talk about momentarily. So that's kind of how they, they um, divide apart essence versus energies. My, my response to that is this. Look, yes, God is not fully knowable. That's true. God is transcendent. He's above us. But he is truly knowable. He really, he is truly knowable. What I know about God, I actually know about God. John 17, 3. This is one reason why I care about this a lot as a Christian is this. Jesus says, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. It's about knowing God. So I, I care a lot about saying, I'm able to know God, they would say, well, look, you still know God. You, you know him in his energies, just not in his essence. I, I don't like that distinction. Although it's true, I will not fully know God. I do know him. I do know him. The Bible doesn't parse out energies or essence, so I, I'm just not inclined to go there. I, I want to say I know God, right? So on this view that I'm suggesting to you, God is still <laughs> transcendent. But then God is still imminent as well. It's preserved. Now, but both in his, on my view, he in his nature is both transcendent and imminent at the same time. Um, whereas they try to distinguish between what God is, the nature and the energies. Anyhow, so I think you get the idea. We're not going to comprehend the extent to which God is all of these things we're about to say. All these things we could behold more of, right? But he is truly what these things are. Are okay. How we how we doing so far? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Pretty good. Okay. Cool. Um, right on. Okay. So a few before we list them off, there are a few different categories. Sometimes people will um, kind of parse out the attributes in. Sometimes they'll and I'm identifying these mostly because it's going to give us a little bit of a framework for how people sometimes think about it. And I think some of these are pretty helpful. Um, so oftentimes people will, uh, and this is what Wayne Grudem does, and I think this is helpful, communicable attributes versus incommunicable, which is basically what are 
aspects of God that he communicates to us, and what are aspects of God that he does not communicate to us. Um, so one of the strengths to this category system is Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1, which says, be imitators of God as beloved children. So we're supposed to imitate God in a lot of ways. So it's helpful to know, okay, what are things about God that he communicates to me, right? Um, at the end of the day, I, I kind of think all of God's attributes, maybe not every single one, but almost all of God's attributes in my mind seem at least somewhat communicable. God wants us to imitate him. So his holiness, I'm not going to be as holy as God. So in that sense, it's not communicable, right? But I will be holy because God makes me holy. He imparts his holiness to me. So that's communicable in that sense. What's one that is not? So power, he still gives us power. Uh, oh, okay. Omnipresent. That's that's a great one. Yeah, everywhere present. Yeah, I just thought of the same one. God doesn't make me everywhere present, does he? But God is everywhere present. If you don't believe me, we're, we're going to see, and that's going to be wonderful. But I'm not everywhere. I'm Alden. I'm right here. I'm only here. I'm sorry. You know? Um, and that's a good thing. Anyway, um, Grudem has a really helpful discussion on page 185. If you're curious about the helpfulness and unhelpfulness of that category, he uses it anyway. I thought that was a helpful little section. Anyway, there's also um, a category system where you go absolute versus relative. The, the names don't so much matter as much as um, understanding what they are. So an absolute example is this is independent of creation. So God is love, right? God is loving. God is loving. God has been loving before he created. He's Trinity. He's loved himself, right? The Father, Son, Holy Spirit have been in a loving relationship since eternity past. Before we came around, God was loving, right? But God was not everywhere present, technically speaking, before he created heaven and earth, before he created the world, right? Where was God before he created the where? I, I don't know. That That's a mind-blowing question for me. I don't know the answer. But I don't know that strictly speaking we can call God everywhere present when there is nowhere you know what I mean so that that's that's what the, that's getting at is okay this is true about God just period and this is true about God in light of having creation as a framework does that kind of make sense Vika <laughs> but isn't he already like outside of time and he's already outside so like if that he doesn't he's not in the where anyway he's here but he's not there yeah, that's, that's a, okay, that's a really good question. Can we hold that until we get to how God is eternal, and then we're going to talk about his relationship with time, and then we'll also plug in space with that as well, why not? All right, perfect. We're going to talk about the space-time continuum. Okay, that's great. Um, okay, so let's, um, okay, cool. So let's let's look at the attributes. One One little note. I, for example, like we're going to talk about how God is wrathful, right? That, that's one of the many attributes here. But I don't so much want to talk about, for example, the wrath of God as much as, and that, that's, a, that's fine, that's a biblical phrase, and I want to say that's a bad phrase to use, right? The wrath of God, right? But what my goal for our study this morning is to behold God who is wrathful. Do you know what I mean? Like, I, I, don't, I don't just want to hone in on what the attribute is. I want to highlight the God who is that way. You know what I mean? So anyway, I'm going to list all of these as adjectives so that we can kind of just conceptually just try to behold our God himself. Does that make sense? So let's do it. Okay. God is transcendent 
The next one is God is imminent. We've already talked about that. That's most of why I have these. I have not subscribed to any particular category. I just kind of listed them out like that. So we're just going to kind of plow through like that. Wait, could you just find imminent? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, among us, with us. Okay. Yeah, that's, thanks for asking that, Mika. Transcendent is like he's above us. Imminent is he's with us. That's a great, great, great question. I'm, I'm sorry I didn't define that earlier. I should have done I've been talking about it for all this time. Oh, boy. Thank you, Mika. I appreciate that. So, God is transcendent. I have a verse here that captures both transcendence and imminence at the same time. That's why I'm highlighting both. Isaiah 57, 15. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high place, and I dwell in the high and holy place. Second half of that verse. So that's transcendence, right? Well, here's imminence. And also I dwell with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. In the very same sentence, God is both. So, well, he's both. There we go. Those are two of his attributes. Next, and I guess these are kind of, this is just kind of like from existence to, to onwards, talking about beginnings and such. God is existent. That's one of God's attributes. He's existent. God exists. Hebrews 11.16 says that without faith, it's impossible to please God. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and rewards those who seek him. Probably in a group of Christians, I don't need to argue that the Bible says God exists, right? <laughs> Um, and oftentimes, in, and I, we were talking about this in the, the group chat on the app, people who write systematic theology books at this moment will often take a whole chapter to go through arguments for the existence of God. I'm not going to do that. That's not because that's not helpful, but in a biblical, strictly speaking, I'm not saying that in like some, oh, this is awesome, it's biblical, it's worse, it's philosophical, that, that's not what I'm saying. But if we're going to do biblical theology, I'm just going to teach what the Bible does say. And if you're curious to do that on your own, that's awesome. Philosophical theology is awesome. And you can go, go nuts. But our goal is simply to see, God, what do you say about yourself? And so that's one that he says, God is existent. God is existent. Related, God is living or alive. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He, he's not some like inactive object like this chair. This chair doesn't have a personality. It's not active. It just, it's there, right? God's not just there. God is active. He's alive. He's living, right? Revelation 1 verse 18 says, I am the living one. So God is alive. Jeremiah 10, I am the living God. This is also why I talk about communicable attributes. This is why God can give us life, right? Because he has life infinitely so, to give to us. the wages, We know this verse, right? The wages of sin is death, Romans 6, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. That life comes from God who has unlimited life to give us. So to kind of plug that into other verses that we know about God. God is also beginningless. God is without beginning. He's not created or made. This is mind-blowing. When I was a kid, I remember asking in Sunday school class, okay, God created everything. Who created God? It kind of like, that's kind of a classic question we ask. And I remember someone saying the wrong answer. Now I know that. I didn't know that. It, it struck me as suspicious. But anyway, <laughs> she, she said, 
God created himself. That's what she said. Now, look, God bless her. That's wonderful. She has, and that's, that's lovely. I'm not trying to diss the lady, but that isn't right. God did not create himself. God is uncreated. He is beginningless. He just always has been. Mm-hmm. That's mind-blowing. Mm-hmm. Man, for a little kid, I think that would be mind-blowing. I didn't have that experience. I was told that God created himself. So that's a little different. Anyway, but if we say that to kids, their mind is going to be like, you know, whoa, what do you mean? And we should hold on to that. God is without beginning. That's unfathomable, right? Man, what an awesome God. He is eternal. Uh, we're going to talk about eternity later, but God's beginning was. Um, related, God is the source or cause or the beginning. God is the beginning, right? All things were created through him and for him. If there is a thing other than God himself, God began it. Just boom. God is it. God's the beginning. If something started, it started with God. Man, that's cool. Revelation 22, I'm the Alpha, the Omega, the first and last, the beginning and the end. God is the start of everything. God is the source of everything. So that's in terms of beginningness, but then also in terms of endness, if that's even a word. God is endless. God is without end. So we've, I've pointed this verse out before, but Psalm chapter 90, verse 2. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. From eternity past to eternity future, God. He's God. He is without beginning. Okay, let's get into some good stuff. God is eternal. Not that the other stuff hasn't been good, but this is gonna be, there's going to be some, some things going on here. God is eternal past and future. So that's related to what we just said, right? Psalm uh, 90, from everlasting to everlasting. But then, so I think we, we're, we're familiar with that. Eternal is related to endless. But what is God's relationship with time? So Vika, this was kind of your question. Mm-hmm. Kind of. Okay. Could you ask your question again? <laughs> Let me remember it. I'll uh, try to remember. God, God is outside of time. time. Yeah, if he's outside of time, then he would be outside of space. So right. there's no where that he really needs to be. Yeah, yeah. And there's a sense in which that might be a really helpful thing to say. This is a, a head scratcher in a lot of ways. Because we live in time. We think in time. So I'm not saying this is a, a nail in any kind of coffin here. But at least some bullet points to, to definitely say. God existed before time, right? We, we know that. John 8, 58, Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am. Jude 25, God is before all time. So God existed before time itself existed, right? God precedes time itself. And yet he also exists in time. He's not restricted to time, right? But he exists in time. Isaiah 46, I'm God, there's none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things not yet done, saying my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. Okay, so he's declaring what's going on in time and he's exercising counsel, accomplishing his purpose in time. So God is, at least does exist in time, right? And I think we all are on that page. We, we pray to God. He answers our prayers where we've prayed in time, right? But God does not only exist in time, right? Isaiah 57, 15. God who inhabits eternity. 
So there's some mind-blowingness here to that, and I, I feel that way. So should we say, as Vika pointed out, so th this kind of begs the question, and I don't have an answer, but should we say God is outside of time? What we wouldn't want to imply by saying that, that, that might be a helpful phrase. We don't want to say that God isn't really among us, right? He's not really imminent. We want to really say he actually does interact with us in time. He exists in time, but he's not restricted to time. From there, I'm not sure I can do any better than that. David. Can we say that when God acts within the um, constraints of time, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. that to God, every point in time is the present, perhaps? I know what you mean. So there are Bible... That's a good question, David. And this is... Yeah... It's, it's, it's mind-bending for sure. So one thing that I do think we should say, God describes himself to be exercising patience with us as we like refuse to repent and as we are slow to repent. So God does in some way experience time, even chronologically. But again, however, we only experience time chronologically. And this is kind of what I think you're getting at is God doesn't necessarily. God is holding time itself in his hand. So I think there's a yes and not really at the same time with God because he genuinely has, if you'll say, let me say this, he's humbled himself, or maybe, maybe better, he's condescended so low to experience time with us and yet to still, maybe this is kind of going back to transcendence imminence, and yet he is still experiencing just himself as the one who creates time and holds time in the very palm of his hand. So in some ways, I don't know. <laughs> but at definitely both on some level. Okay. Is that helpful? A little bit, yeah. I'm not sure we're going to nail God. <laughs> right, understandable. Yeah, so. but that's why we're struggling to answer the question. But it's yeah. a really good question, David. Troy. Would a good analogy be like... A person watching a TV show, being able to like rewind, fast forward, and also be able to like enter the TV show at any point. Mm, okay. Again, I think yes and no, Troy. So that yeah, that's a great that's a great question. So God does not rewind time itself. Sure. That's something that we see God doesn't do. In fact, he says. I have fixed the moon and the stars, the, the moon and the sun in Jeremiah. I'm, I'm, I don't have the verse offhand, but it's Jeremiah something. I got, and he even says, look, I've made a covenant with you guys so concretely that if the moon and the sun stop doing what they do in their cycle, then you'll know that I don't love you anymore. And his point is, I love you, all right? This is going, this is happening. This ain't stopping, right? So... When God created, he initiated something that he would not stop. Mm -hmm. It functions the way it functions, it being creation. Can he rewind? I believe he can. Sure, Will he ever do that? I believe he won't, because he says he won't, is the best I'm able to do with that. Okay. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> sure, I understand it. Yeah, 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 it's a great question. It's a great question. So I think something similar, though, your original question, Vika, was about um, God being everywhere present. We're going to talk about that in a moment, but 
I think something similar we want to say. I think right, like, where was God before all creation? I don't know how to engage with that as a meaningful question. Because is there a where at all? Is there a place before anything is other than God? I, I, I don't have a category for that. I'm not sure we should have a category for that, if you know what I'm saying. Now that God has created, okay, yeah, he's in creation. But he's not s- simply in creation. He's not only in creation, is he? Because he inhabits eternity, the high dwelling place. That ain't here, you know? So I think probably something similar applies here. Yeah, yeah. So I, is that helpful? Yeah, like I, I think about also like Jesus having a body now too okay sure that's another thing yeah 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 it's like we're we occupy space because we have bodies right like right right God is exactly spirit, yes that's a completely different and that we're gonna that's yeah, yeah. we're gonna go yeah well let's keep going we and we're gonna we're gonna cover this stuff yes amen thank you Vic, for bringing yeah. that up so the next one that i have on my list is god is infinite um isaiah 40 verse 28 his understanding is unsearchable um, Psalm 147, verse 5, Great is our Lord and abundant in power. His understanding is beyond measure. Genesis 17, 1, I am God almighty, right? So and in light of God being infinite, he's therefore also for us incomprehensible and unknowable to a degree, etc. and all these things. Because our finite minds, we can't put an infinite thing in any category for ourselves. We just, it doesn't fit. Infinite doesn't fit in finite does it and we're fine so yeah this is just really this is really just cool that god is this way um but from god's infiniteness we we get something called the doctrine of undiminished giving this is one of my favorite things undiminished giving god gives without being emptied he's not diminished he's not like all right troy i'm gonna give you some life all right, I need to catch a breath. No, God has it infinitely. He pours it out and he is always fully tanked up on whatever it is, whatever he has. He's never like, man, I created a lot. I am exhausted. The seventh day God rested to be an example to us of what rest looks like, not because he's like, man, my back hurts. No way. Um, And actually we're gonna get to, yeah, okay, literally God is all powerful. Jeremiah 32, nothing is too hard for you. Nothing. God can create the whole universe and just be totally happy. I mean, wow. God can do so much. I'm not infinite. I'm not almighty. Like, I get tired. I'm I'm sleepy, even in this moment. I, like, didn't sleep that much. God doesn't need to sleep. He's all-powerful. He doesn't need to replenish. He's infinite. Undiminished giving. That also means that when he gives life, it's not like, oh, I wish I could save more people. I just I don't have enough life to give. No, that's not what it is. God has unlimited life to give. He himself has unlimited life. He is unlimited life. Really cool. Okay, some quick note about classic question. Okay, God's all-powerful. Can God create a rock so big that he can't lift it? No, he can't do that. God can't create God. God is, one of his attributes is unique. He has to be that way. God is, if you want to talk about it this way, constrained to his own nature. God isn't able to be one of two. That's not possible. That is impossible. God is all-powerful. It's not that God can't do it. It's that your question's broken. That's the right answer to that question. (laughs) God can't not be all-powerful. He is necessarily all-powerful. So if there's a rock, he can lift it. 
Is there a rock so big you can't? No, there isn't. God can't make that. That's an impossibility. Does that kind of make sense? So God is all powerful with respect to his nature, if you really want to say it that way, or with respect to his character. You know, God can't lie, for example. There, we're going to get to that God is truth. God cannot lie. It's impossible for God to lie, Hebrews says. Or maybe it's James. Somebody says it in the New Testament. It's impossible for God to lie. God has a character. So, anyway, sometimes people love to play with that thought. I'm sorry, I, I totally poo-pooed on that sandbox. Can't happen. Um, okay, God is all-knowing. This is another attribute of God. He's all-knowing. That is, he is... Um, this is knowledge, right? He is knowledgeable combined with he is infinite. So God is all-knowing. Very straight up, 1 John 3.20. God knows everything. John just doesn't really leave anything open to discuss. God knows everything. He knows everything. Large scale, Hebrews 4.13. No creature is hidden from his sight. We're all naked and exposed in his eyes. He knows everything. Small scale, Matthew 10.30. Even the hairs on your head are numbered. He created the whole stinking universe and also knows every every single meticulous detail he is aware of. He is all knowing. He even knows everything hypothetical. Matthew eleven twenty one. Sometimes, in particular, Christians will say, "Oh, that's a hypothetical." I don't want to say that. I don't know if we say that here at Mercy House, but I've heard that before. Jesus gives hypotheticals. Matthew eleven twenty one. Woe to you, Shorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Jesus is saying, "I know what would have happened." God knows everything hypothetical, even not even not only all things actual, but all things hypothetical. He is aware of. Yeah, whoo! I can't whistle, but yeah! So, this bumps up against a wrong view. Open theism. Does God know the future of, does God know future human choices? So, sometimes open theism is well motivated. They want humanity to be free, to make decisions, and not be constrained, you know? And we're, we're gonna talk about free will later. We're, we're not gonna really open that up. <laughs> but open theism is, is unacceptable because it teaches that God does not know future human choices. That God does not know future human choices. Whatever we want to say about the sovereignty of God, and we're going to talk about that, don't worry. I'm not just throwing that away as if it's too controversial to talk about. Whatever we're going to say, God knows everything. We have to say he knows everything. John says God knows everything. So... Yeah, I, I, I literally wrote in my notes, did they forget 1 John 3.20? Like, God knows everything. Like, yeah, this is no, I, I believe this is an unacceptable Christian view. Isaiah 44, I am the Lord, who says of Cyrus, given down to 20, verse 28, he's my shepherd. He shall fulfill all my purpose, saying of Jerusalem, she shall be built, and of the temple your foundation shall be laid. This is God saying, I'm going to make the king of Persia build my temple. Is that a future human choice? Uh, yes, it is. It, 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 open theism is just, yeah, it literally denies that God is all-knowing. So we, we, can't, we can't say that. So anyway, that's a little quick plug against open theism. God is unchangeable. We mentioned this before. I, the Lord, do not change. Um, James 1.17, the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Psalm 33, the counsel of the Lord stands forever, the plans of his heart to all generations. God does not change. That's really good news. So an asterisk to put in here, or a, a question that we do need to, to ask is, does God change his mind? 
Does God change his mind? There are passages of scripture that sound initially like they indicate, yes, maybe God can change his mind. Moses sometimes pleased with God. Wait, you just said you'd do that. Please don't do that. Here's why. And God says, okay, I will, I will do what, what you're saying, right? So there's a number of verses we could go to. The one that I think is most clear is in 1 Samuel chapter 15 about how God would change his mind or perhaps also, if you'll use the word, regret, right? So 1 Samuel 15. In verse 10, it says, the word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I made Saul king. Mm. Ooh. God? You're unchangeable. I, the Lord, did not change. Malachi 6, what are we doing? <laughs> what, are you, what are you regretting? Okay, skip down a few verses. 1 Samuel 15, 29. The glory of Israel will not lie or have regret. Okay? For he is not a man that he should have regret. So, verse 11, I regret that I've made Saul king. Verse 29, I will not have regret. Because I'm not a man that I should have regret. Conclusion statement, verse 35, the Lord regretted that he made Saul king over Israel. Okay, what's happening here? Is God <coughs> conflicting with himself? No, I don't think so. Here's something. When we're talking about God, we're using frameworks that we experience as humans in terms of when I regret something, it's because I'm changing my mind, right? Mm. But I'm a human. Verse 29, I will not lie or have regret, for I am not a man that I should have regret. So when God, quote unquote, changes his mind or has regret, as the Bible says, he does so in such a way that he is not a man. He is not, he doesn't have human regret. He doesn't have a human mind change. It's not the case that God in, takes in more data and he's like, oh, you know what? Moses, excellent point. I hadn't accounted for that in my spreadsheet. No, God is all knowing. It says that. He, when he says that I change my mind or have regret, it's in a way appropriate to God. It's not in a way appropriate to humans. God is not like us. God has a lot of these attributes that we don't have, at least in terms of fullness, right? So I think that what we should say about this is that God changes his mind in a way appropriate to God, not in a way like humans. God totally knew what was gonna happen. He literally said, I, I know everything, right? But yet he still felt sorrow over the situation because of his own actions, even though he exactly knew how it would work out. That's a head scratcher. That's mind blowing. I don't totally know how to put all that together. Wayne Grudem has an attempt that I think is not so helpful. Um, and really all I'm doing is complaining because I'm literally telling you I don't know how to do it, but we hear Wayne Grudem, he's trying. But anyway, I, I don't think this is a helpful way. Wayne Grudem 195 says, it's about God's present attitude to the situation at that moment, but if the situation changes, then God's attitude, of course, would change. But on that view, what if God's attitude toward my sin changes in a new situation? Does he change his mind about saving me? Now, Grudem wouldn't say that, neither do I, but I think it, that's a hole in what, where, where Grudem's rationale is. I'm not sure we can say finitely, concretely, oh, this is what God means exactly when he's exercising regret. At the very least, this is what it means. He has sorrow over what he himself has done and what he knew he would do. It grieves him on some level what he has done, but he knew that he would do it. Boom. I don't, God is great. He's greater than me. How are we feeling about that? David. So we can say that, you know, God laid out this situation, knew the outcome, mm -hmm. and all that. Yeah. 
and at the same time was moved with emotions over the consequences of those events. That's an even better way to say it. Yeah, that's an even better way to say it. Okay. Yes, okay. yes. Well, you think about it like when Jesus dies on the cross, and then it's like everything goes black, the curtain tears. Yeah, like, amen. And he obviously knew he was going to do that. Yeah. I don't think that's a secret spoiler to whoever's on the pod and not read the bible yet i guess yeah. but you know like he knew he was going to do that but has the emotion from it yeah yeah amen he yeah that's a gr- oh that's guys you're you're helping me right now that's that's the best way to say it god knows what he's going to do but he is still moved with the emotion from it that's a great way to say that it even has the emotion coming into it because jesus is praying in the garden before like totally hey, yeah well said pray. yeah amen amen very well said very well said thanks guys yeah amen I think, you know, he he gives us free will, and sometimes he's sad over a choice we make. That's true. He could interfere, and uh, I'm not sure what he would do, take free will? What kind of lives would we have then, you know? That is an important question that we are going to talk about for probably an entire class, I think. So thanks, Gary. Yeah, that's a great question. Alton, does it make sense also to say there's like an original intent that he had? So like I'm thinking parents with kids, right? Mm. Um, where their heart is always like they wanted some. Their heart is for their obedience, and but there's a plan right. for disobedience, and they're mm. grieved over that. Yeah. And if there is repentance, they're like we're gonna keep going with that original plan. Like there's a I see God like changing and always in the context of repentance. Like if you that's repent, right, I will relent. That's right. When that's uh, that's a really meaningful thing to observe. When God quote unquote changes his mind, it's in light of human sin. Right. He's grieved over it and responds to it mm. every time. That's a really great. That's great. I need to put those things in my notes, guys. That's you're 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 helping me out. Yeah, amen. Yeah, very well said. Better than I said it. Um, There's another thought. I'm not sure exactly where to tie it to. Yeah. Says that God can do anything, but He just doesn't do certain things. Like He He just sure yeah chooses chooses I won't do I'm not going to do that. Yeah yeah. I could, but I'm not going to. Yeah right right right. Yeah, I think that's well said. Yeah. But if God, so I'm, go for it. If God knows we're going to repent, is he really changing his mind or is he just waiting for us to repent? And there, that's a great point. I would say he's not changing his mind like men do, like humans do. Right? He's accommodating to our newfound sin, yeah. right? but that was God's plan. I mean, I declare the end from the beginning. Yeah. You know, so that was his plan the whole time in a certain sense it's also god's plan to legitimately and genuinely interact with humans in real time as we sin and as we go off course and such can we ever really go off course we're in god's hands you know we can't right and god knows where we're going you know um and he has us right but god yeah genuinely is grieved over the sin that we commit that he knew we would commit but that he genuinely succumbs to the emotions of nonetheless because he loves us, yeah. actually. Okay. Is that helpful? It is, yeah. That's good stuff, guys. <laughs> Amen. Okay. Um, you know what? Okay, yeah, let's talk about... Is God impassable? I put a question mark on here. Um, 
Sometimes people will, and I'm going to talk about what this word means, and that's an important part of the whole controversy about whether God is impassable or not. There's a murky history to using this word as an attribute of God. The word itself comes from pagan Greek religion, so that's not totally cool. For them, God has no emotions whatsoever at all, does not care about creation, the gods in Greek religion, and therefore God is entirely unaffected in every way by creation. That is an unacceptable Christian view. That's not our God. Can you repeat that? Yes. Um, yes, I can. I'm, that's a great thing. <laughs> Saying God is impassable, that is something, ultimately, that, that's a word that we are borrowing, if we're going to use it, from pagan Greek religion. That's not necessarily a bad thing, but that's where the word comes from. And what it meant to them is God has no emotions whatsoever does not care about creation, is not affected in any way. Is God grieved over sin? No. The gods don't care about us. That, that's what it meant then, basically. And I'm suggesting that is not an acceptable Christian view. Because, I mean, the Holy Spirit is grieved for our sin, right? I, I think that's Ephesians, right? Anyway, God does experience things with us and loves it. He's, he's among us, right? He's imminent. God was not imminent in pagan Greek um, religion. Anyway, but should we still use the word? What does it mean if we're going to use it? Definitely we need to say God experiences emotions. Isaiah 62, the bridegroom, that's God rejoices over the bride. So shall your God rejoice over you. Okay, we're not talking about the same kind of impassibility, if we're going to talk about impassibility at all. Also, yeah, okay, Ephesians 4.30. I should stick to my notes, Alden. Um, God also experiences grief. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. Right? So God can experience rejoicing and grief. When the church fathers in the first 500 years of the church used the term impassable, they used it in a qualified <clears throat> sense. This is going to become relevant when we talk about when Jesus became man. That's why I'm bringing it up now. But they used it to mean God is undiminished from suffering, is specifically what that meant. So maybe we could say God is undiminished from suffering as an attribute. He's unharmed in suffering. Well, a whole nother question. Does God suffer? Well, that's another controversy. But okay, if grief counts, Ephesians 4.30, don't grieve the Holy Spirit, then yes, God suffers. But we need to, again, we need to qualify it because God does not suffer like we suffer, right? God, does God change his mind? Well, not like we do. He genuinely experiences the emotion, but he determined it the whole time, right? So is God grieved? Well, Yes, but not in such a way that he is made worse. When I'm grieved, Alden, I'm grieved oftentimes, maybe not every time if I'm doing it unto holiness, you know, being sanctified by my suffering, but often when I suffer, I'm made worse. I sin when I'm suffering. I, I get discouraged when I'm suffering. I am made worse. That's not how God suffers. If we're going to say God suffers, that's not how God suffers. God suffers in such a way that he is undiminished. If he suffers, he does so in a way that he is unharmed, undiminished. So that's kind of, is God impassable? Depends on what you mean. Does that, does, does that kind of make sense, what we're doing so far? Yeah. Our wheels are turning, and that's because God is awesome. So here we are. God is spiritual. So Vika brought this up. John 4.24, God is spirit. Those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Jesus says that in a context to mean you don't have to go to a particular place to worship God because he's spirit. 
He also means because God is everywhere. We're going to talk about that in two attributes. But this means if God is spiritual, right? God is a spiritual reality. Then God is bodiless. God is bodiless. In his nature, God is bodiless. When Jesus comes and becomes man, that's going to, you know, we're going to scratch our heads about that in a few weeks. But for now, God in himself, the nature of the essence of God, the nature of God is that God is spiritual. So God is bodiless. Luke 24, 39. A spirit does not have flesh and bones. Okay. So God doesn't have flesh and bones in himself. That's not what he has. Those aren't one of God's attributes. That's not part of the divine nature. God's nature is not physical. Okay, let's keep going. God is invisible. This is related to God being spiritual. 1 Timothy 1.17, among several things, God is immortal, invisible, the only God. 1 Timothy 6, whom no one has ever seen or can see. 1 John 4.12, no one has ever seen God. In fact, there's a moment where I was at uh, TGC, the Gospel Coalition Conference, and Ligon Duncan preached on this passage, and it made me think about the invisibility of God. Exodus 24, 9-11. Moses, Aaron, Nadab, Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel went up, and they saw the God of Israel. They saw him. What do you mean? There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God, and they ate and drank. What does it mean that they saw God? They saw where he was standing. That's what it means. They, they didn't see him. Ligon Duncan, I'm, I'm taking this very much from him, but they're, they're saying, look, I saw God. Whoa, what did he look like? Well, where he was standing. No, 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 what did he look like? Where he was standing was like Sapphire. No, 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 what did he look like? They just saw where he was standing. They didn't actually see God. God's invisible. To behold God is to just see where he's standing for them. He's invisible. So anyway, I thought that was a really cool point about Exodus 24, so I wanted to share that little nugget with you. But God is invisible. God is invisible. God is also everywhere present. We've talked about this. Jeremiah 23, can a man hide himself in secret places so that I cannot see him, declares the Lord? Do I not fill heaven and earth, declares the Lord? The answer is yes, he fills heaven and earth. Okay, a question that this brings up, though, is God, you know what, Mm, uh, do I want to save this for later? Yes, yes, we're going to say, is God present in hell? We're going to talk about hell later, so I'm just going to, I'm going to, you know what, no, this, this, uh, we're going to skip it for now, we're going to skip it for now, (laughs) sorry, I waffled, I waffled, final decision. Um, We're going to talk about, is God present in hell when we talk about hell? For now, let's just talk about God's attributes. Um... Okay, God is one. God is unified. Deuteronomy 6.4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is one. James 2.19, You believe that God is one, you do well. John 10.30, I and the Father are one. So what does this mean? God is, well, it means a number of things, but we believe in one God. That's first and foremost, that's very important. But also that one God is uncompounded. He's without parts. Each, so... So sometimes this is a way that we accidentally say heresy all the time. And I'm not saying that's like, people are like in trouble for that. I'm just, let's call it what it is. But anyway, when we say, oh, the part of God, oh, wait a minute. God is unified. God doesn't have parts. It's not like there's part of God that's loving and part of God that's 
everywhere present, and part of God that's wise, part of God that's perfect, part of God that's wrathful. These are different parts that make up the whole. No, no, no. God's not, uh, what's that example of like a, a four-leaf shamrock? Oh, this is the part of, no, no, no. That's, that is not how we should talk about God. So if God is loving and if he is wrathful, this is going to be a little bit of an explosion in my brain and probably yours. God is lovingly wrathful. He's wrathfully loving. All of his attributes co-describe all of the others because he's one. He's one thing. It's not like, okay, let's screw in some wrath. Let's screw in some peace. Let's screw in some... No. God as one is all of it. Wow. So what we really could do, God is unifiedly, lovingly, wisely, perfectly, holily righteous. Or add to that, holily, justly, gloriously, completely, truly, freely, all these things. So God is all, all of those things at once. What a complicated and awesome, simple God. Okay, let's keep going. God is loving. I think I already said that. Did I say that? Yeah, we, we talked about this. Okay, so we're going to keep on going. Um, God is all wise. His wisdom, Romans 11, is unsearchable. His judgments, how inscrutable are his ways, right? And that's, so that, this is why God gives us wisdom, James 1.5. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God. He gives generously to all without reproach. It will be given. Why can God do that? Because he's all wise. He has all the wisdom to give to us. God is perfect. A God of uh, Deuteronomy 32, a God of faithfulness and without iniquity. The rock, his work is perfect. Psalm 18, God, uh, this God, his way is perfect. God could not be better than he is. God is perfect, maxed out perfection. He's literally the best thing that there is. God is holy. Holiness is, uh, by definition, like removed from sin. So God is sinless. He is holy. There's a number of verses about that. Uh, Isaiah 66, verse 3, you probably have heard this. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. God is righteous. Psalm 11, the Lord is righteous. Psalm 145, the Lord is righteous. This is also related to how we get saved, by the way, right? 2 Corinthians 5, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we could become the righteousness of God. Why can I become the righteousness of God? Because God has his righteousness to give to me, to give to you. God is righteous. That's a communicable attribute. Our salvation depends on him communicating his righteousness to us. God is just, um, I'm starting to cruise because we're, we're running a little shy on time here. Um, feel free to keep asking questions. Though. God is just, uh, Deuteronomy 32, he is a God who is just and upright. When Job has accused God of doing wrong to him after like 40 chapters of suffering with Job's really lousy friends who are just insisting that he's just a sinner and that's all that there is to say about it. God shows up and rebukes Job, of all people, for saying, why are you accusing me of being unjust, basically? Here's what Job said. After God just shows who he is and what he does, like, did you create the boundaries of the earth? Here's Job, verse, uh, chapter 40, verse 40. Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. 
Summary, I changed my mind, God, you are just. God is just. Even if we don't feel it in a moment, if we behold God truly, he is just. God can do what he wants. He is just and upright. God is glorious. God is glorious. Psalm 24:10. Who is this king of glory? He is the, uh, the Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. This is also something we get to share in. God communicates this to us, 2 Corinthians 3. We all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed ourselves into the same image from one degree of glory to another. God communicates his glory to us. On on Grudem, he has a really strange, I've never heard this definition of glory. I I think it's so weird. So I'm saying it to you so that you know that. Uh, Page 263 Grudem says that God's glory is the, quote, created brightness that surrounds God's revelation of himself. I don't know. Glory is more than just brightness. That's not all glory. Glory is God's awesomeness, his majesty, his greatness. Glory. God is glorious. It's more than just brightness. So I just wanted to let you know that. Anyway. I think that he's relating the brightness to when we walk in light. Like, so the light yeah. is so bright that we can't. So it's true. So in, in good question, Dustin. In Revelation, it does say that God's glory will illuminate the new Jerusalem. It does say that. But I, I guess what I'm, I'm suggesting is that that's not all God's glory is, okay. is brightness. I, I think there's more to it. For example, John 17. Father, glorify me in your own presence, with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. And Jesus is about to be glorified on a cross. That ain't so bright, you know? But, I mean, he's going to be bright, don't get me wrong. But there is a glory to that, too, you know? And and there's more to that than just brightness. In fact, ironically, actually, it's pitch black. There's a, a like a miraculous darkness that happens in the middle of the day because it's so bad, you know what I mean? Um, but it sort of illuminates... His glory in the plan that no, like where it's like we're not able to save ourselves. So yeah. he propitiates Christ totally. Was Amen. Amen, and that's glorious. Yes. And when I say that, I don't just mean that is bright <clears throat> like a light bulb. I, I mean that's awesome. That's majestic. That's kingly. That's right on. You know, like wow, amazing. It, it's like a, a heart experience as well as like a physical experience. Mm-hmm. Maybe that's a better way to okay. say it. Glory is hard to like describe with words without using the words. Yeah, it's yeah. Because like, you just what you said, it's an experience. Yeah. Oh, that's like, a great way to put it. I didn't even realize I had quite said it that way. But yeah, that that yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, well said, Mika. Well said, Alden. Thank you. Um, God is complete. In other words, He's content. He's lacking in nothing. Acts seventeen. Paul basically said, "Look." God doesn't need you to do anything as if he is served by human hands. He doesn't need anything. He gives everything to human life, to everything that has life. God is complete. He's content. He doesn't need anything. He's not needy. God is free. Psalm uh, 115, our God is in the heavens. He does all he pleases. If God wants to do something, he does it. That's what he does. God is free. God is unconstrained. Oh, actually, unconstrained is the very next one, which is related. God can be wherever he wants, even physically as well. Uh, 1 Kings chapter 8. But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. So this is related to omnipresence. God is here, but he's not contained here. This isn't, he's not stuck here. He's not put in a box. 
Importantly, God is willing. God has a will, right? God has desires. There are different types of God's will. We're going to talk about that in God's providence, I've decided. So there's there's two things I'm, I'm putting off for later, hell and God's willingness. But what we need to know for now, God has a will. There's a divine will. He wants things. He has authentic desires. He has communicated a will of sorts to us. We have desires now as well. God is also true. He is truthful. 1 John 5, him who is true, him who is true, he is the true God, right? God is true. Related, God is faithful. 2 Timothy 2, if we are faithless, he remains faithful for he cannot deny himself. God is faithful. That's encouraging. God will literally never let us down. He is faithful. We don't have friends like God. God is truly faithful. God is good. Taste and see that the Lord is good. God is never bad. He is good. We might think, oh, this stinks. God is good everywhere. I mean, people say all the time, God is good all the time, all the time. God is good because God is good. It just That's it. In our suffering, God is good. God is this way. He's unchangeable. He can't not be this way. He is good. God is also patient. Um, 1 Timothy 1.16, God is perfect in patience. We're really grateful for this. He's also, Joel 2, slow to anger. We're grateful for that. I sin a lot. I need patience from God. God is peaceful. 1 Corinthians 14, God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. And now we are called to peace as he is peaceful, Ephesians 4. We're called to maintain unity in the spirit, in the bond of peace. God communicates his peace to us. Even uh, Jesus even summarizes salvation in a sense in John 14 by saying, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. So we get peace from God because he is peaceful. God is orderly Jeremiah oh, here's the verse actually for Troy that I was mentioning to you Jeremiah 33 I have established my covenant uh, if I have not established my covenant with the day and night and fixed the order of heaven and earth I'll never leave you is basically what he's saying I've fixed it I'm, I'm orderly I'm a God of order I have fixed it God is also jealous jealous meaning he desires singular devoted worship Exodus 34, you shall worship no other God for the Lord whose name is jealous is a jealous God. Now, he's not jealous in a human way, right? When I get jealous of certain things, I'm like, oh, maybe that person looks more handsome than me. You know, that, that's, that's sinful jealousy, right? Um, God doesn't have sinful jealousy. God has legitimate jealousy, like the jealousy of a spouse to a spouse. I want your attention because you're mine. It's right. I deserve your attention. God even more so. God's not just a spouse. God is God. Do you think he's also jealous for us because he created us for the purpose of worshiping him too so he knows that that's what we need to be complete? Yeah, yeah, that's a great point, Dustin. Ironically, God's jealousy is good for us. God's jealous because he's like, I just love you so much. I want what's good for you and I'm what's good for you so I should have your worship. Yeah, Yeah, that's a great point. It's not self-serving even Mm -hmm. what God... I mean, yeah, because that's even related to God is content. God doesn't need us. He's not just here because he wants worship. It's true, but he wants worship in part because it's good for me. It's good for you. Yeah, amen. Man, that's a great, great point. God is also wrathful. What that means is God hates and punishes sin. He hates and punishes sin. Some people will say God is only wrathful in the Old Testament, not in the New. I'm, I am here to dismiss that idea. Revelation 19 says, from his mouth 
That's the New Testament. So there are Old Testament quotes, and I have those here. But from his mouth comes a sharp sword, which with, with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. Man, that's violent. That's hard to understand. We're going to talk more about God's wrath later, but just for now, God is wrathful. This is something that he is. He's unchanging. He's also loving. We've talked about that, right? But God is wrathful. This is something that God is. The good news, of course, is that that's what Jesus saves us from, is God's wrath, right? We deserve God's wrath. God is wrathful. But now Jesus has taken what we deserve, has taken that wrath of God, and has saved us from it. So that's even related to the good news of the gospel as well. We're coming in for a landing here. God is blessed. This is one that we, we don't talk too often about, but God is blessed. Um, I learned that the word for blessed is also synonymous with God is, not, well, not just God, blessed. To be blessed in the Bible is to be flourishing, is to be happy. It's not just, oh, God bless me. Have a good day. You know, no, there's substance to this. If I'm blessed, I'm flourishing with God. I'm happy. Well, God is also blessed. 1 Timothy 6. He who is blessed and only sovereign, King of kings, Lord of lords. God is flourishing. God is happy. God is blessed. And he lets us participate then in his blessedness. That's the Beatitudes of Matthew, Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the poor. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. You know, you know those from Matthew chapter 5. God lets us, God, God communicates to us his blessedness. This is one I, I didn't have a concept for before reading Wayne Gruner's book. God is beautiful. God is beautiful. Beautiful meaning God has desirable qualities. I get this from him on page 261. But he, this, is, this is a verse that, um, that, that talks about the beauty of God. Psalm 27. One thing I ask for that I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. Here it is. To gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. Wow. To gaze upon the beauty. I, I have not had a concept for that most of my Christian life. Beauty for God, I think this is going to connect for us, is not external. Beauty for God is internal. It's a matter of our hearts. I mean, you know this verse, 1 Samuel 16. The Lord said to Samuel, don't look at his appearance or the height of his stature because I've, because I've rejected that guy. The Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. So... Beauty is something God is looking at in our hearts. 1 Peter 3, do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of your hair, or the putting on of gold jewelry, or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. Now, obviously, 1 Peter 3 is not literal. We are not supposed to not wear clothes. Okay? So, hey, just throwing that out there, there's some controversy about, can I wear gold jewelry? Clearly, anyway, that's another thing. But we're, the point is that our beauty is in our hearts. Our adorning is not something physical out, outside. Our adorning is internal. Our beauty is internal. God's beauty is in his character as well. Okay, a few, we have four more or so. God is unique. God is unique. There is none like you, Jeremiah 10, O Lord. You are great and your name is great in might. 1 Samuel 2, 2, there is none holy like the Lord, for there is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. Exodus 9, so that you may know that there is none like me. 
related. God is incomparable. This is similar to unique. But God is also saying, you can't even compare anything with me. Isaiah 40, 18. To whom then will you liken God? Or to what likeness compare him? That's how amazing God is, is that I can't even make an analogy that will help us truly understand him. To what will I compare him? God is incomparable. This is an understatement. God is big. God is big. <laughs> Isaiah 40, 12. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? <laughs> the water. There's a lot of water in earth, okay? The, the palm of his hand? Come on. That's big. God is big. God is so big. He created the whole universe. God is also great. Psalm 145. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised and his greatness is unsearchable. The last one I have, maybe I should have said God is worthy, but I have God is worshipable. Revelation 4.11. Worthy are you, O Lord our God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. God is worthy. God is worshipable. This is our God. Praise God. That's not all of them. Thank you. That's just like a measly list of a few things, you know? I don't think it's possible to list all of them. Amen, man. It's really cool to list them, though. To, like, spend time. It sure is. Yeah. 